This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Elisa Yukiko Whitebrook as she talks about understanding visual culture and faithful looking. Dr. Whitebrook is an associate professor of art at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Whitebro encourages us to consider we are what we like. So this morning, um, I am not talking about art history per se, but about one of the ways that we are most likely to encounter images in our culture today, social media. Images are, as I said, important to my talk, so I do encourage you, if, you, if you're having trouble seeing the screen, you might want to go ahead and, and pull um, the slideshow up on your own device. Okay, so social media. During the course of the pandemic, social media played an even more outsized role in many people's lives. Particularly during the early days of lockdown, social media was, as the name suggests, a place where people could still find social connections outside of their families that they're you know, locked down inside the house with. So throughout 2020, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok served as sources of public health information and misinformation, uh, activism, entertainment, um, domestic and culinary inspiration, parenting advice, fitness instruction, mental health guidance, live music, and digital church evangelism. And that's a lot of things for any one app on your phone to do, right? And through all of that, we're tapping the little like icon. But as much as 2020 showed us how social media could connect and instruct people who are physically isolated from each other, It also clearly demonstrated some of the real dangers with these platforms. So the documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix was just one example of a cautionary tale um, regarding the impact of social media. So as Christians, I think we like to think that we have a pretty good handle on how to operate on social media and what to tell our kids about it. And often the guidelines come down to something like, don't say untrue or unkind things and don't look at bad stuff right? But philosopher and theologian Jamie Smith takes a step further back 
and suggests a more fundamental concern. Proverbs 4.23 counsels us, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So Smith argues that it is what we love, not what we know, that forms our actions and us in this world. And so if that's true, how are all of our self-professed likes, the little thumbs up or the hearts on our social media apps, how are our likes shaping us? Now, to be clear, I'm an art historian. I'm not a social media expert. And so to that end, I want to focus on the aspect of social media that I know best, which is images. Now, I know we're in the PCA. We like words. We love a good Twitter thread. There is no blog post that is too long for us to read. But all of us are shaped by images, and all of us do live in an image-saturated culture. Okay? So this morning, I want to do two things. First, I want to use an extended historical example as a kind of metaphor to help us better understand the power and the stake of images in contemporary social media. And then I want to suggest some practical ways that you and those that you minister to, whether they be in your home, your church, or some other kind of context, how you can develop a richer and more reflective practice of looking that orients us towards God and towards our neighbor. Okay? So, before there was Instagram, there was the 17th century Dutch. It's, this is like my favorite thing to tell my students about. The growing middle class, fueled by Dutch global exploration, colonization, and trade, created an extraordinary demand in the 17th century for images, but images for the home. And this was a real shift from the medieval period where artworks were primarily commissioned by the church or by nobility. While that patronage system persisted in the predominantly Catholic cultures of 16th and 17th century Italy and Spain, the mostly Protestant Dutch you know, said no to public religious artworks. And so, instead of being a holy or a luxury item in churches and palaces, images became part of everyday life. So we have these accounts of travelers to the Netherlands in this period marveling that tradesmen's homes could have 20 or 30 prints or paintings hanging in their living room, essentially, like hanging in the front room of their house. And some historians even estimate that between 5 to 10 million works of art were produced from the mid-16th to mid-17th century, though only a small percentage of them have survived to this day. So, like, yes, that's small potatoes compared to the 50 billion images that have been uploaded to Instagram, but still, the proliferation and the democratization of images in 17th century Holland has some other similarities to that social media platform. While the portraits and smaller religious paintings of earlier centuries did persist, new genres also developed. So I want to see if any of these seem familiar to you. Okay? The exquisite landscape. To clarify, the one on the left is 17th century Dutch. <laughs> the one on the right is Instagram, right? We have the artful food shot, right? The very casual, like, ah ha ha, but I'm like holding my drink. 
the fashion appreciation post. You really like this guy on the left, like his sleeves. Um, the cute pets, like the Dutch were already doing that. And this is also really funny to me, finding humor in other people's pain. The Dutch were doing that before we had viral videos of people falling off of all sorts of things. <laughs> right. Yeah. But there is more to the similarities between Dutch paintings and Instagram than just subject matter. It's not just what these images look like, but how they actually act, what they do in the world. 17th century painting and 21st century photographs do not simply reflect their respective cultures, they also shape them. So they are what I would call, what Jamie Smith would call, a cultural liturgy, okay? Jamie Smith, who I mentioned earlier, argues that we are worshiping creatures and that what we do teaches us who or what we love. So repetitive practices that might seem innocuous, like playing video games or eating out at a restaurant to celebrate an achievement or scrolling through social media, these all orient us. They tell us stories about who we are and where we belong. Smith says our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flows. So with this in mind, let's look more closely at those Dutch paintings. How might the viewing, the purchasing, the circulation of these images actually shape Dutch identity? How do they both reveal and form Dutch loves? And in the back of your mind, I want you to be thinking, how does this also then manifest in social media, okay? So to do this, we have to first confront the still popular notion that Dutch paintings are all metaphors. The well-known Dutch art historian Hans Ruckmacher, who I am very indebted to, um, he's writing in the mid-20th century, and he argues that the so-called golden age of Dutch painting was specifically a result of the Protestant Reformation. So he sets up a contrast between Catholic painters of Italy, Spain, and France with their marble nude sculptures and their milky-skinned Virgin Marys. Um, he contrasts that you know, with these Dutch images of just like ruddy peasants and peaceful cows and stuff like that. And he says that's the, the result of theological differences. According to Ruckmacher, the Reformation, quote, freed artists to devote themselves to painting ordinary, everyday reality. Aesthetic beauty was sought in the common, sober view of reality that shunned every effort to be theatrical. So what he's saying is that the reformed theology that permeated Dutch culture resulted in a desire for well-made, aesthetically pleasing work that presented the world as it is, rather than as an ideal, the way that you would see in a lot of Catholic art, okay? In addition, the Catholic, uh, sorry, the Calvinist penchant for moralizing meant that the everyday could symbolically point to some sort of moral lesson for us to learn. So a broken tree could be a sign of the fall, while new growth signified regeneration, or a butterfly perched on an arrangement of fruit or flowers could signify life's fleeting pleasures, things like that, right? 
Ruckmacher, in this approach, was actually influenced by a German art historian named Erwin Panofsky, who argued that Dutch paintings could be read what he calls iconologically. So they're ciphers of the basic attitudes of a nation, a period, a class, um, kind of condensed into a single artwork. Now, over the past few decades, numerous scholars have added to this understanding of Dutch painting. And instead of just understanding Dutch painting as a reflection of Dutch thought, they have explored how Dutch art served other social functions. So what are the paintings doing? Okay. For example, in the newly formed Dutch Republic, the home was elevated as a microcosm of the state. So the well-appointed, smoothly run home was supposed to reflect the stability and prosperity of the Dutch government. Okay? The, domestic the domestic space served a public function. And this is even evident in Dutch architecture, where the front room of the home would actually be visible from the street. Okay? You can kind of see it in both of these paintings here. So Dutch families would fill these rooms with paintings, and then these paintings, in turn, helped construct notions of what profitability, um, what domesticity, um, even what patriotism were supposed to look like. Okay? I think this is fascinating. Still life paintings from the first half of the 17th century typically displayed locally produced goods, Dutch cheese, Dutch meat, things that were like, yeah, we're like making this stuff, you know, and we're celebrating Dutch self-sufficiency as we battle for independence from Spain. But then, this later, after they've gained independence, the seafaring Dutch increasingly dominate global trade, and they begin establishing colonial outposts. And then the still life paintings grow crowded with Chinese porcelain, with shells from the Caribbean, with Middle Eastern textiles, exotic fruits, things like that. So all of these objects could function as moralizing symbols, but they also help define personal and national success. Right? They're also teaching you this is what, what success looks like. Similarly, landscape paintings could mirror the theological arc of creation, fall, redemption, but those big skies dominated by billowing cloud formations also created a visual language of the Dutch homeland. So we're saying, like, this is who we are as a nation, and this is what our landscape looks like. Um, I often tell my students, you know, in, in Chattanooga, we have a lot of mountains around us, but my husband is from the Midwest, and whenever he comes back to the Midwest, he's always excited to see sky again. He's like, ah, oh, finally, sky. And I think that that's kind of what the Dutch were like. They have no mountains. They're like mostly below sea level, right? But they have really dramatic sky. And so these paintings become a way of saying, yeah, this is who we are. This is what we're proud of, okay? They are building visual liturgies of personal and communal identity. So I like to talk about this accretion, this gathering of images as our visual archive. Images make meaning in conversation with other images. And all of us as viewers have a mental storehouse of images that we've seen before. And I call this our archive. 
You probably can't name all of the images that are in your archive. You certainly don't remember the first place that you saw them. Um, but we are always interpreting and categorizing new images and new experiences in relationship to the things that we have already seen. So you can think of it like a giant filing cabinet in your brain, right? And let's say you see a new image of a sports team celebrating after a championship, and you're kind of like going through your mental filing cabinet until you find the folder with other photographs, um, other pictures of groups of sweaty people wearing the same outfit, hugging each other while there's confetti, and you're like, ah, victory. <laughs> this goes there, and then you file that away, right? Um, now, of course, we do all of this really quickly and without much conscious thought. So oftentimes, especially for my, you know, my baby college students, um, we have to liken this not to a filing cabinet because they don't know what that is, but to a Google image search in our brains. But it works here, too, because if we input something, you know, even something as innocuous as sunset into a Google image search, what comes back is remarkably consistent. <laughs> a whole bunch of photographs that are highly saturated, glowing, all of them sort of vaguely familiar and reinforcing what a good or photo-worthy sunset looks like. And so when we're actually out, you know, when we're outside, and we see a brilliant pink and gold sunset in person, we might say something like, oh, somebody take a picture, right? Or wow, that looks like a painting. Or wow, that looks like a photo. Um, it's so amazing. And we're pulling from our visual archive. So you can imagine how this all worked in the context of 17th century Dutch painting. Images taught viewers how to conceive of not just beauty, but prosperity and propriety. Images build consensus and community over what is good and what is not. So here's what an exemplary wife looks like, but here's what a woman you can objectify and use for a price looks like, okay? The archive has moral consequences. Now, because of the high degree of naturalism in these paintings, they look like things that we observe around us, we might argue that they were simply recording how things actually were in Holland, okay? Some of them do look almost photographic with the remarkable detail in still life painting and the, the casual poses in some of these genre scenes, but the lifelike quality is a testament to the artist's skill in actually fabricating a fiction. Some scholars have pointed out, for example, that when you look at these flower paintings, not all of those flowers bloom at the same time. These are impossible bouquets. Or when you look at um, one of those you know, gorgeous tables full of food with the oysters cracked open, they're not going to last long enough for you to be able to paint the whole thing. When you look at these casual poses and the laughing and the smiling in the merry company, we might think, oh, that looks like a snapshot. But Franz Hall is not in a, you know, in a tavern rapidly painting the things that he sees. He's building this off of other observations. He's building this off of other experiences that he's had. So Dutch patrons, they know that these images are constructions. Okay, they know that these are simply pictures, 
But that knowledge doesn't change the fact that the paintings were incredibly popular and powerful. Images fed desires not only for economic success and nationhood or a good laugh, but they also fed the desire to make more images. So particular motifs or compositions would become popular, growing a market for further copies and variations. You might see a still life painting in your business partner's house and there's this beautiful yellow lemon that's been partially peeled so you can see the texture of the pith inside of it. Um, and your friend, you might know that your friend can't afford to keep real lemons, which would be expensive in his house, but you really like this painting and you think, oh, like he's kind of showing off with this. So you go and you find out if the same artist, Peter Clace, has anything else that kind of looks like it. And then maybe you buy a painting that also has a partially peeled lemon in it. And then your business partner, another friend, comes over um, and he sees that and so on and so forth. Isn't that kind of crazy? It's like this, the way that you see images right, recycled on social media so often now. These paintings might not reflect a love of lemons per se, but they perpetuate, you might even say that they disciple a love of display, of signifying wealth using a visual language that other people in that culture would easily understand. So the lemon becomes a trope. It becomes a kind of shorthand for a particular kind of life and status. What these 17th century Dutch paintings and their markets show us is that images make meaning not only through their subject matter, so not only the lemons or the people or the flowers, they also make meaning through their form and context, right? It's the believability of the paintings, the sheer volume of the paintings, their presence in people's homes, and the repetition of these tropes over and over again that all contribute to what we might call the naturalization of those images. They build an archive that informed people's actual lives by shaping their loves. Okay. So, what happens if we extend our comparison of Dutch 17th century painting and Instagram beyond just similarities in subject matter? In our viewing, reposting, and following, we also worship. Whenever we click the little heart or thumbs up icon, we literally announce our love, right? And it's not, it's not inherently wrong to delight in the perfectly styled interior, the workout routine, the beautiful plate of food, or even the umpteenth video of some poor soul being knocked off of a jet ski. We are image bearers. We're formed to be culture makers, to love beauty, to build relationships, and to recognize like our human finitude and foibles, right? But we must understand how an uncritical consumption of images might misdirect our loves and tell a bent story about who we actually are. So what does faithful looking look like? Now, of course, I want to acknowledge that there are vast historical, cultural, and technological differences between 17th century Holland and 21st century United States. Social media comes with its own set of particular challenges, and there are a number of books and articles and documentaries that deal with those in, in greater detail. So here, I just want to briefly explain two characteristics 
of social media platforms that specifically affect how we interact with images. Okay, so I'm just sticking with the images. First, social media unhelpfully flattens distinctions between kinds of images. Okay, social media unhelpfully flattens distinctions between really different kinds of images. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they all present content in a visually standardized way. So you might try to work around Instagram's cropping ratio, but there's always a platform, right, into which you are inserting content. And so when you're scrolling, even though the content of the images might be different, there is a sense that everything that you're looking at has been standardized in some way. Now, depending on what kind of social media you use and how you use it, the kinds of images, the variation of images that you see will vary. So for example, you know, my mom, she follows only people that she knows on Instagram. She is very pure. <laughs> And so she is just seeing photographs from her friends. Like, that's, that's all she has, right? But my brother, on the other hand, follows a lot of hiking and news accounts along with personal friends. So his feed might look something more like this. Stunning landscape photo. Stunning landscape photo. Friends selfie with ice cream. Friends photo of her cat. Journalist image of destruction from a natural disaster. Graphic text panel with headliner question. Stunning landscape photo. Kind of, I mean, like when you say it like that, you're like, oh, that's not how we're built to work, right? The shared formatting and unlimited content encourages us to treat all these images as the same when actually they're really different from each other in fundamental ways. The landscape photos are carefully planned. They're shot with high quality equipment, edited and posted with the intention of inciting a desire. Don't you want to go here? Or perhaps its purpose is to cultivate the photographer's reputation as an adventurer, unencumbered by the mundane realities of dirty dishes and dental appointments that you have to deal with, right? The photojournalist is also using high quality equipment, but she's making choices about what to photograph and what to ignore in order to tell a particular story. Formal decisions like the angle that she uses or the cropping can change the impact of the image and so can the caption that goes with it. And then there's the friend's selfie. You know, she, she snapped a photo of her gelato right before she ate it, just like on her phone. She's on a trip to Italy. She walked nine miles. This is her reward for the day. That's like, she just wants to share that with you. And then, but your other friend, the one who took the photo of her kids, she's still using her phone, but she's paid attention to composition. She's done a little editing with a filter so the shadows are softer and certain colors pop a little bit more. She's grateful that she captured this moment of her kids because most of the time they're flailing and yelling at each other. And so this feels special that we're all like quiet. So not only are all of these images different in subject, right? Do you hear how they're also different in process and intent? But again, that infinite scroll of social media platforms means they are threaded together without distinction. So understandable, Misunderstanding or confusion can result. 
perhaps we imagine. So, you know, we, we might not think it through and, and be like, think that the landscape photograph was casually snapped on a phone as documentation. And then when we do that same hike, we're disappointed because it's just kind of meh. <laughs> it's like not that great at noon. Or perhaps we roll our eyes at our friend's photograph as her, of her kids as being too perfect or showing off because it's not real, it's not authentic. Most concerning, however, is how this format can juxtapose news images and the disastrous aftermath of a hurricane next to a celebrity lounging by a pool, right? Those photographs want different things from us but the platform implicitly tells us to treat them in the same way, to consume them, to absorb them uncritically, to keep scrolling. We're supposed to like them and then just keep going. Another challenge specific to contemporary social media is, of course, the infamous algorithm. An algorithm is a set of mathematical rules that dictates how a group of data behaves. So social network algorithms prioritize what we see according to our perceived preferences. This applies to our friends' content as well as to advertisements or other suggested posts and users. These algorithms use machine learning, so they essentially get smarter about what it is that we want to see. By showing us more of what we love, the platforms keep our attention for longer, and can provide more opportunities for us to see and to click on advertisements. In terms of images, the algorithm encourages us to see more and more of the same kind of image. So if you clicked like on even one fitness video, then your recommended feed will give you more workout videos, right? And the feedback is almost immediate. I saved two photographs of haircuts last week, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning, my whole feed is like all of these pixie cuts you know, for you to do. Um, and on one level, it might seem harmless and kind of helpful. I was like, oh yeah, I do like that one a lot. But the narrowing of our world never encourages us to grow in our love for an infinite, all-powerful God, nor does it enable us to marvel at the breadth of his creation and his image bearers. As I explained earlier with Dutch paintings, we assemble images into an archive that shape our engagement with the world. An archive filled with just a limited set of images teaches us to erect false boundaries and definitions. Okay. Now, it might be really tempting to blame social media for all of our culture's ills right now. Be like, kids, you're off of it. We're just like not doing it at all. And there is a lot to condemn and to critique in how social media has been used to bear false witness, to slander, to objectify the Imago Dei, among other sins. But sometimes, and this is perhaps especially true in more intellectual circles, we have a tendency to find safety in critique. Critique allows us to feel mastery or superiority we won't be taken in by that advertisement, right? We know that something's been photoshopped. We know that the algorithm is making it even easier for us to buy that swimsuit or knife sharpener or box out of Lord of the Rings or whatever it is that you've clicked on. We want to believe that we are purely rational creatures when in fact we are loving ones. 
it is often much harder to address our loves and the habits that form them than to grapple with an issue on a theoretical level. Just critiquing social media won't lead to sanctification. Sorry. As John Calvin wrote, human hearts are idol factories. Instagram just holds a mirror up and doubles the production speed. What we need is discipleship. Again, Jamie Smith writes, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive and intentional about what you love. How can we be attentive to and intentional about what we literally like on social media? So I want to walk through three practical steps um, and then leave some time for questions at the end. A first and necessary step is to assess what it is that we're looking at in the first place. I know this looks intimidating, <laughs> but I've started an annual practice of trying to keep just a one-day journal of all of the images that I see. And I've encouraged, started encouraging students to do the same thing. On just, just pick an average day, not one where I'm going to conferences, not one when I'm going to museums, but just a normal day with normal rhythms, I try to keep track of where I'm seeing images and then what kinds of images I'm seeing. So in the morning, I might tick off the platforms where I'm seeing the images, right? For me, it's primarily Instagram, plus some images from online newspapers. For my husband, he sees most of his images on Twitter, and then Instagram is a second. For my oldest son, it's Apple News, particularly the paleontology space and cat feeds that he has all followed. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, I can go to settings on Instagram, um, and I can click on, oops, let me make sure it tells you all this correctly. Um, I can go to settings, I can go to account, then I can go to liked posts, and I can take an inventory, it'll show you everything that you've liked, and I can take an inventory of what I'm liking. What do those images tell me about my habits and my loves? And you can do this on other platforms as well. So for example, a few years ago, my image journal helped me realize that I was seeing a lot of content from black and white artists and writers, but I actually had very few images um, of Asian Americans, photographs or otherwise, in my feed even though I'm half Japanese and my Asian American identity is really important to me. Um, or this year, I had a lot of kitchens in my feed. Guess what we have going on right now and what I've had to repent of of making an idol, right? <laughs> so meanwhile, my husband has lots of images of bicycles. So another means of taking stock of the images that you see could also be to look at your um, suggested content. I generally avoid the suggested or recommended tab because I really don't need an algorithm to give me more images of pistachio morning buns. Like I'm doing good on that on my own. But when you're doing a self-assessment, checking on that feed can provide more obvious clues as to what loves you've been pursuing lately that you might not want to admit to yourself, okay? So step one, would be to assess what it is that you're looking at at all. Practice number two would be to consider why that image or video is in your feed. 
Here again, the algorithm is of course at work, but I want us to think about this on even a more granular level. Remember how we said that Instagram flattens out various kinds of images and encourages us to think about them all the same. But in actuality, the vacation photo from your friend and a vacation photo from a travel influencer are really different from each other. They have different intents and they desire or demand different kinds of responses from us. So trying to be mindful of the actual differences between the images in our feed can really help us determine what we do next. Because yes, the final practice, the final step of discipling our social media loves is to be purposeful, not just in what we look at, but in what we do with it. So if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves, then our response to images must direct our hearts in these ways. And for me, the most exciting thing is that as image bearers, we can be generative in our response, not just critical, and we are not necessarily bound by the intent of the person who made or posted the image. Instead, we can respond with an understanding of the good, good story that we are a part of. So let's go back to this example of your friend who posts the filtered photo of her kids playing together with their cats. And full disclosure here, these are my kids and my now deceased cat, but we'll just pretend that this is your random friend, okay? <laughs> we probably can't know her full intent here, right? Is she trying to cultivate a public image of herself as the mom who has it all together? Is she trying to become Insta-famous? Is she implicitly comparing herself to her sister-in-law? Or is she just happy that her kids are finally sitting still and wanting to share, and she wants to share that moment with others? Isn't it more about our own shame that makes us feel discouraged that when we see this photo, our children are currently screaming while running up and down the stairs? Isn't it our cynicism that assumes that she's showing off when she posts this photograph? But what if we stop to ask ourselves what we don't know about the image? We don't know what her last 48 hours have been like. We don't know if she is battling shame of, in motherhood. We don't know if there's a giant mess of toys just outside of the frame. We don't know so much. And the photograph is only a fraction. And this is all the stuff that comes up in our hearts from a photograph from an actual friend, like somebody that we know and like, right? How much more we don't know if this was a photograph from a celebrity or an influencer that we follow. So what if in humility and in an effort to love our neighbor, we simply responded by trying to cultivate gratitude on her behalf? What if when we clicked the little heart, we also prayed, Father, thank you for giving her this time. Maybe an Ebenezer for her that she can look back on later. How about that hiking and adventure guy that you follow? You know, maybe he is posting to build his business. That's why he has this account. But what would a generative response on our part look like? Rather than envy, can our response be doxological? 
can we marvel at the creator God who made the Milky Way and set the earth in orbit around the sun and carved mountains and canyons that make us feel small? And then that's it. Thank you, Father, for making us embodied and allowing us to inhabit spaces. Show me how to care for the home that you've given me with faithfulness rather than comparison or shame. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to find delight in the things that we eat. Thank you that this beautiful photograph of someone else's pie is encouraging me to be creative myself. Even if my version isn't as aesthetically pleasing, and it won't be, may I honor you by making something with my hands today. Thank you, Father, for that black brother who is just ordained. I confess that he does not fit into my archive of preachers and theologians, and I confess that this is because my understanding of your kingdom is too small. By the way, if you're not following AAMPCA on your social media, you should. <laughs> Are you going to consciously do this for every single image that you see on social media? No. <laughs> but over time, we can build a habit of faithful looking, right? Sometimes, discipling our hearts might also mean growing and expanding our visual archive. So when I realized, for example, that all of the homeschooling accounts that I was following were run by white mothers, I realized that my notion of who homeschools was unhelpfully small. And so I decided to purposely seek out and start following a few black homeschooling moms. There was nothing wrong with those other accounts. They're, they were not causing me to stumble in any way. But adding more richness and texture to my archive helped me expand my implicitly narrow view of what a homeschooling parent could or should look like. I want to be clear, I'm not advocating for some sort of diversity quota that you have to make sure that you're following like three people from every ethnicity or anything like that. But, but what I needed were just images that made my idols and my unwitting devaluation of my neighbor evident to me. And maybe this means following one of many available accounts devoted to literally sharing little-known archival images. So this is one that I follow, the SUNU Journal, which is a pan-African repository of archival material. Um, and it includes a lot of images from post-colonial Africans, um, of post-colonial Africans, taken by Africans for modern African viewers. That's been really helpful for me. I also follow um, another account called The Ship Studio, which published images from a rural Tennessee photographer. It has helped me grow in my love for the places and the people that I am around now. The images themselves won't sanctify me, but engaging them thoughtfully can be a means of sanctification. And of course, sometimes discipling our hearts might mean removing things from our social media feeds. It can be helpful to periodically clean out who you follow. And this isn't a self-help, protect yourself from toxicity kind of mantra. This is a recognition of your fallenness and your finitude. So I realized, for instance, that the undifferentiated scroll meant that I was rarely able to give journalistic photographs the kind of um, concentrated energy and gravity that they really needed. And so I recently decided to unfollow or to mute um, news accounts 
from my social media feeds so that when I'm engaging with the news, I'm doing so in a really like, thoughtful, um, proactive kind of way, rather than mixing them in with everything else. There's more, of course, but these are three steps that have been helpful to me and that I've begun sharing with my students. So this morning we've considered how images, including the ones we see on social media, are already discipling us, just like Dutch paintings did several centuries ago. We've acknowledged some of the built-in challenges of the social media format rather than the content. That is, really different kinds of images are presented as being the same, and the algorithm feeds our idols even faster than we might realize. But we ended by exploring how we might be attentive and intentional about what we love or what we like here. We can note the kinds of images we're seeing and consider the different reasons that they might be posted. We can evaluate how they might be interacting or contributing to our visual archive that helps us filter our experience of the world. And then we can respond generatively by foregrounding our own limitations or brokenness and asking ourselves, how these images might help us grow in our love for God and neighbor. What I'm proposing here is not at all what social media was designed to do. But we're a countercultural people, amen? So let us build liturgies of looking that reinforce the beautiful story that we are a part of. Rather than looking to like, we can look to love God and our neighbor. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.